Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features Zadie Smith, interviewed by Jane Zwart at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Their wide-ranging conversation includes Smith's love of C.S. Lewis, the challenges of literature about and for the working class, and the varieties of religious experience. Zadie Smith is the award-winning author of five novels, including White Teeth, On Beauty, and Swing Time. Her essays and book reviews are frequently published in The New Yorker and The New York Review of Books, and many of those are collected in her book, Changing My Mind. She is currently a professor of creative writing at New York University. To help me introduce the session, I called up Becca Walkus, Zadie's student host while she was on the campus of Calvin College for the 2016 festival. Student involvement is a hallmark of the Festival of Faith and Writing. Members of our student committee help with everything from registration to shuttles to social media, and one of the fun perks of the job is spending time with our speakers while they're here on campus. Becca, who has since graduated, was an indispensable member of the 2016 team. Oh, so good to hear yours. <laughs> it's so great to talk to you today, Becca. Where did yeah. we catch you? I am in my flat here in Budapest, Hungary. I just got back from a day at school, and I'm actually going to go back after this for a sixth grade production of <laughs> Romeo and Juliet <laughs> <Awesome>. in English. <laughs> so I'm I'm spending this year, I've spent this year teaching English as a foreign language here to primary school children in Budapest. Well, uh, it was so great to have you on the student committee. Um, You were also, in addition to being on the committee itself, you were our intern for the Festival of Faith and Writing that year. So we're kind of involved in things at a very crucial level (laughs) for our staff. (laughs) Uh, We loved having you on the team. And then um, you helped wrangle the student committee. And you you hosted Zadie Smith while she was here. Um, And one of the reasons we were excited to kind of connect the two of you guys while she was on campus is that you actually wrote your senior thesis, your honors thesis, on her book on beauty. Um, And I wonder um, if you could talk a little bit about why you were so captured by that book and just Zadie Smith's work in general. Right. So I started reading Zadie Smith over the summer. I can't even remember which one, probably after my freshman year at Calvin. And I'm not even sure who recommended her Mm -hmm. to me. Maybe it was a professor, maybe I just saw some books at the library, and I remember reading White Teeth, and I I couldn't stop reading it. I think I I read it straight through, Mm -hmm. and then I read On Beauty, and then I read The Autograph Man, and then N.W., I just read everything straight, and then Changing My Mind, I think. (laughs) And I couldn't, I just couldn't stop reading her, and I think one of the biggest reasons was, and I think especially why On Beauty has always stuck with me, is that there's just a sense of like these really small stories and these really particular people who are so quirky Mm -hmm. that you can totally imagine them, you know, as your neighbors or other people in your life. And the sense that these particular people are part of this really big and abstract story and overarching, overarching themes are working in their lives. Mm -hmm. I I always felt that 
you just couldn't stop reading it because you had to know how these big things would resolve. Yeah, for sure. Um, this interview that we're about to listen to that um, uh, Jane Swart does with uh, Zadie Smith at the 2016 festival, it covered a lot of territory. She kind of dipped into a lot of her novels. Right. Um, and uh, one of the things that was kind of most... Um, I think kind of charming about, I love the interviews at the festival because, you know, people kind of go off script, so to speak, from what they're going to talk about in their um, kind of keynote or solo sessions. So you kind of get these anecdotes and stories that you just wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And she tells a story about how she, like, she was, um, how compelled she was by C.S. Lewis in general, that she fell in love with the Narnia yes. books when she was a kid. But specifically, when she got older, David Foster Wallace actually suggested to her that she read the screw tape letters um, and that she had found that um, sort of explication of the Christian life in particular really a compelling, um, compelling read. Uh, I wonder what kind of jumped out at you from that interview that you found really interesting as someone who'd read a lot of her. I really, I loved what she says when she's segueing into this bit where she talks about C.S. Lewis is that um, by reading Surprised by Joy, she was sort of confronted between at, as to the difference between joy and pleasure. Mm. So joy as something uh, containing, you know, terror and delight and pain and you know, being, being being more than just mere happiness. Mm -hmm. And so I think she talks about, you know, how to connect that that joy and daily life. And so faith being being one way that you might connect this big kind of frightening joy that's right. so large to, to the particular, to your daily life. Exactly, because I think she talks about how in her essay, I, I think it might be called On Joy or something like that, yeah. that um, this description that you just gave of, of joy as this combination of wonderful things, but also really challenging pieces uh, too, um, the, the, the fear, the terror, <laughs> these kinds of things, right. and how it was kind of unclear to her how you would want to live with more joy in your life, or that, you know, that yes. that was like actually a really challenging idea because joy itself was such a kind of unwieldy, um, like, presence in your life. Yeah, and there's a sense in this whole interview that, I don't know, I've, it sort of skirts around faith a lot, mm -hmm. which I I remember finding really, really compelling. And the sense that a commitment to faith, too, is something that, that like joy, you, it might in and of itself be this kind of stumbling block or something that mm. might trip you up. You're not sure that you want more of it, yeah. but, but no. you're sure that it's important and that... <laughs> You, you need to be skirting around it or thinking about it in yeah. some in some ways. Yeah, I think she's very honest about this. She's clearly compelled by, um, I think she talks about like ecstatic experiences people have and right. is, is not willing to just kind of chalk them up, so to speak, to aesthetic experiences. So there's like yeah. something more going on there. But she herself acknowledges, I think very honestly, um, that she's not sure she would want to be a person of faith per se, because that would so disrupt her daily life. Yeah. <laughs> and she kind of likes her daily life. Yes, <laughs> I know? love that line. Yeah, I thought that was And really a sense that it's the, it's the certainty of faith that she finds, mm. you know, complicating and disturbing is that the sense that's, that you have a right to all the answers, you have access to mm. all the right answers. And so it sounds, yeah. And that's where Sounds... that's like what repulses her from faith, yeah. like from people of that kind of faith. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who's read her work, what was it like hanging out with uh, Zadie Smith while she was here? I remember the first thing she said to Jane Zwart and I when we went to pick her up from her hotel was, 
about Cal like predestination. Oh, she was really? like, "Y'all are Calvinists. Like, do you guys do you guys believe in that?" And I just remember being like, "Um, this one's for Professor Ward. I'm not gonna handle that." <laughs> so I just like silently walked behind them. I talked about deep theological concepts. Tried mm. to not trip. <laughs> that I think just sums up a lot of our lives. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Becca, for joining us. Um, it's been great to, to reconnect and to talk about Zadie Smith. Yes, my pleasure. And now Zadie Smith in conversation with James Wart at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. Sadie Smith, thank you so much for talking with me this afternoon. And I wanted to begin by just asking about some of the books themselves. And I think if it's okay with you, we'll work in reverse order. Sure. All right. Um, so the only one I don't have here, I think you still have in your possession, and that is Swing Time, yeah. um, which you're uh, going to have published in November. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that book is it has to do with what you're writing it to see if you can. So you've talked about writing on beauty to see if you could get the tone or the color of a 19th century novel and about writing um, NW to see whether you could write a book that had four really different narrative modes. So my question is, what test of that sort to see whether you could do it led to swing time? Um, Gosh, that's a really good question. It it sounds uninteresting, but the test was to write in the first person, (laughs) I guess. That was the test in my mind. And to write something that um, was almost almost like a fable, like it, cont- it continues to have that feeling of realism and detail, I hope, and of human people. But I, yeah, almost something with a fable-like quality. Yeah. So, if it's a fable, it has a moral. Um, it's <laughs> a good question. I, I was trying to think about what it's like. Um, uh, it's hard to describe. Like if, if you could have um, all, all Christian-American lives summed up by one life or all, all uh, Polish-Jewish lives summed up by one life, I was trying to think about uh, black life, I suppose, thematically. Hmm. And so it's a little bit like that, the feeling of, of blackness. Hmm. All right, we'll wait. <laughs> Um, I also wanted to ask you about N.W. Yeah. Uh, and before writing that book, you had written an essay about Middlemarch by George Eliot. Um, and you talk in there about the famous Eliot effect. Um, and this is a quote from you. You say, here's the English novel at its limit, employing an unprecedented diversity of central characters. The novel is a riot of subjectivity. And then you go on to explain that each character in the book would think that someone else in the book was the main character. Yeah. <laughs> so my question about N.W. is, even though it doesn't have as many central characters, it seems to me like another English novel at its limit and like a riot of subjectivity. Um, but I read it as less sympathetic to its characters than Middlemarch is to its characters. Is that fair? I guess I think of it the other way around. Like, what strikes me about Eliot and Austin, that whole tradition, is how uh, judgmental it is. <laughs> Jane Austen is one of the most judgmental writers ever to have lived. 
Um, and I think a lot about that in terms of, um, well, they're both without children, which I think is very interesting. Because, because as the daughter of somebody, um, you have a lot of judgments. Um, you have a lot of opinions about your parents, about the village you live in, about everybody. And I think one of the experiences of having children is um, it kind of thrusts you into uncertainty in a different way. Mm-hmm. Austin seems to me absolutely certain, um, full of judgment. I think because it's comic, maybe people don't notice it so much, but it, the whole book is something like Pride and Prejudice's gradations of total condemnation of everybody in that book, <laughs> apart from Elizabeth herself. It's very severe, in fact. Um, but it's delivered in this comic manner. Um, and Elliot has something similar it's in, in the simplest way. It's a kind of journey through husbands or potential husbands and their various flaws. Um, so I guess when I was writing NW, I, 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 White Teeth is written very much in that mode, but as I've got older, I've just become mm. less, uh, less inclined to write from that point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess what I'm trying to get at is... Um, Sort of, you talked to Ian McEwen about mm-hmm. his narrative voice tending to be absent of a judging uh, consciousness. Right. So maybe it's just a kind of distance or not as much. Yes, I, I just, um, I, I, I prefer that distance. It seems to me uh, in some way more ethical or something. I, mm-hmm. The things which tire me in fiction are, are kind of fake, aphoristic wisdom or or this ob- obsession with judgment. I think comic novels are always about judgment one way or another. But, I, but the question is, is there another way of, of being in the world rather than judging it all the time? Mm-hmm. I, I had this incident last week when I went to a ch- children's party with my kids. It was a, a three-year-old's party, and my husband didn't go. And when I came back into the apartment, the first thing my husband said was, oh, tell me everything. And so I just <laughs> tell him about all the awful people and the terrible mother-in-law. And, <laughs> And I saw my daughter looking at me like it had not occurred to her that that was what going out in the world was for, you know, to examine <laughs> a lot of people and then do ridiculous impressions of them and find them hilarious. And, and I felt very shamed when I looked at her. Like, is there another way of being in the world that mm-hmm. doesn't involve this constant yeah. act of satire? Yeah. yeah. So using the first person as partly a way, a way of avoiding it. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Um, another question about NW... Uh, so in that essay, Speaking in Tongues, you talk about Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, yeah. which a lot of people will know kind of by way of My Fair Lady. Right. Um, and one of the things is that that play, you say, is swapping one voice for another. Eliza's doing that. But the play itself is still many voice. Yeah. So thinking about the character of Keisha Natalie in N.W., I think part of that book is about her swapping, not even entirely successfully, right. one voice for another. But would you say, what you say about Pygmalion, that it's a many-voiced novel? Um, it, it is many-voiced. Uh, I think as, it, as I get older, it'll be harder for me to imitate the voices of, of my youth, for sure. Mm-hmm. Just because the, the way kids talked around my way changes so much so quickly. Um, so it becomes antique, all that slang, all the rest of it. Um, but there's still a certain rhythm to North London speech, to South London speech that I recognise and enjoy. Um, and I, I pick up, I hope I pick up new voices. You know, being in America, I hear a lot of new voices that I get to now write about much more than I used to. And uh, certainly in swing time, I can see the American 
There are mm. more sections set in America, you know, so it begins to encroach on my fictional world as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let me turn to On Beauty um, and ask you a question about probably the most um, minor, but to me, one of the most beloved characters in the whole thing, <laughs> Katie Armstrong. Oh, yeah, the student, yeah. Yeah, so in the middle of the book... Katie Armstrong shows up for about seven pages, yeah. um, and she's this young undergrad that is at this Ivy League college, and she feels like she doesn't understand her history class because it seems not to be about the art. Right. Um, and you write about her and sort of her predicament, but also her loving this painting, Rembrandt's Seated Nude. Oh, yeah. um, and having this affinity. I'm glad you're reminding me of all of this. I have yeah. no memory of any of this happening in the book. But yeah, go on. Well, <laughs> let's remind you a little more. Uh, would you read yeah. the marked passage? Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, from here to... Just keep going until you see another red bracket. Okay. Thing. Um, the second picture, on the other hand, makes Katie cry. It is seated nude, an etching from 1631. In it, a misshapen woman, naked, with tubby little breasts and a hugely distended belly, sits on a rock, eyeing Katie directly. Katie has read some famous commentaries on this etching. Everybody finds it technically good, but visually disgusting. Many famous men are repulsed. A simple naked woman is apparently much more nauseating than Samson having his eye put out or Ganymede pissing everywhere. Was she really so grotesque? She was a shock to Katie at first, like a starkly lit, unforgiving photograph of oneself. But then Katie began to notice all the exterior human information, not explicitly in the frame, but implied by what we see there. Katie is moved by the crenulated marks of absent stockings on her legs, the muscles in her arms suggestive of manual labor, that loose belly that has known many babies, that still fresh face that has lured men in the past and may yet lure more. Katie, a string bean physically, can even see her own body contained in this body as if Rembrandt was saying to her and to all women, for you are of the earth as my nude is and you will come to this point too and be blessed if you feel as little shame, as much joy as she. This is what a woman is, unadorned after children and work and age and experience. These are the marks of living, so Katie feels. And all this from cross-hatching, Katie makes her own comics and knows something of cross-hatching. All these intimations of mortality from an ink pot. Oh, that's nice. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't read it in ages. It's quite good, isn't yeah, it's it? Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the question I wanted to ask yeah. you about Katie yeah. is partly what she as a character is doing in the middle of this novel, but also why she's there so briefly. I think I stole the idea. I think it's in, in maybe in Bleak House, or it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it was Dickens, and I have a feeling it's Bleak House, that there's a chapter that's self-contained about a character who isn't involved anywhere else, and I thought it was an interesting idea. Um, and then I wanted to try and find a, a conduit for some of my experience when I was in college, um, because I came so naively, I, you know, I came from a background in which no one in my family was educated to that level, and I was the first to go. And I guess I'd read a lot of um, stuff about Bloomsbury, and I had a very romantic idea of where I was heading. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then, and I was very enthusiastic. So I think the first essay I wrote was all about. Um, it was kind of it was kind of fictionalized. So it was Oscar Wilde and Sylvia Plath and all these people talking in the essay, like as, as characters. <laughs> Um, and I took a long time over it, and then my professor gave it back to me, and he just marked underneath, this is not an essay. And that was, that was the beginning of, of my education <laughs> at Cambridge. And I happened to land in Cambridge in, in um, 94, a time of a lot of theory, high French theory. And so all my ideas about um, novels, I really thought of them as this kind of, you know, truth and beauty thing, you know, this kind of life-changing thing. We're not... Um, were not in fashion at all. Uh, and because I'm very easily influenced, I fully, I fully got on board the French theory train and, and forgot about all of that stuff. And, and it was only you know, years afterwards, really writing this book, where I thought, well, you know, it, was, it was quite a brutal experience to go through, you know, to have to give up one version of aesthetic pleasure mm-hmm. and leap into this other purely intellectual um, response. So Katie was kind of about that, really, and as a foil to Howard, who takes up so much space in the book. Yeah, well, and it's funny that that part is somewhat autobiographical because that's the least comic part of the comic novel, probably. Yeah. I mean, so much of the rest of the novel is plain and fun, and but she seems like a character out of some other book that kind of wandered in. Yeah, I think that's the way I... If I, I think when I'm writing personally, I do feel much less funny. For the obvious reason, it's, it's easier to ridicule other people than yourself. Oh, I find it quite <laughs> easy to ridicule myself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh. um, so another question um, about On Beauty um, and about the character Zora, yeah. who it seems by you, if not by her parents, is probably named for Zora Neale Hurston, yeah. at least in part. Um, and yet she's a character that really doesn't seem, even though she's very into sort of curating her identity, to borrow a phrase from your grad speech at the New School, <laughs> she's curating her identity, but she doesn't seem that interested in questions of her ethnic identity. No, I, I, it was interesting to me writing that book because I realized afterwards that... Um, I had, uh, me and Zora had somehow been conflated in a lot of people's minds. Like I was in the playground a while after it came out, and one of the other professors, because I'm at NYU, so all the other mums are professors, um, came up to me and said, I didn't know your father taught at Amherst. I was like, my father did not teach at Amherst. Like, I realized they thought I was the child of academics, and it was all my life. So that was funny, but um, uh, no, it was kind of a projection. I was interested in the children of those kind of people. Because I met them in college for the first time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Upper middle class kids whose parents were writers and artists and intellectuals and journalists. And it was just so... Um, it was really inconceivable for me, that idea, mm-hmm. that, that your parents could be involved in that world. And that, for instance, you could, try, you could make art and offer it to them and they would, they would respond to it in, this, in that kind of way as an intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum certainly reads everything and is, is really... Uh, fun with it and is now has a degree herself but my father um never read me you know he he read articles about me but he never he never could get through any of the novels or anything so it's it's funny that idea of a father like howard is kind of unimaginable to me yeah um so zora i do zora was kind of a satirical representation at least a part of my adolescence when i was so i think so focused on trying to 
to prove that I was British, which tells you something about Britain because I was born there and I have a passport. I shouldn't be needing to prove I'm British to anyone, but unfortunately, that's the way that country works. Um, so Zora was kind of a, a satirical representation of that part of my, um, my personality as a teenager, which, which I, I kind of look on ruefully because I, I missed a lot, but also I'm fortunate that my mother is very young, so I've had a lot of time to uh, catch up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. I'll turn to the autograph man now. Um, and you wrote somewhere that much of the excitement of writing a new novel is always um, in the repudiation of the one written before it. Uh, so what I'd like to know about the autograph man is what you feel like it repudiates from White Teeth. Well, part of it was just a series of, of um, religious preoccupations, you mm-hmm. know, which got worked out in each book. Um, and so White Teeth, I was, you know, really interested in Islam and I read the Quran and a lot of it came out of that. And then uh, I had these kind of Jewish mystic-y friends from college. Um, and that's really where Autograph Man came from, just a kind of, um, just an interest. And then my father died as I was writing it and then I became very interested to the point I thought I was going to convert and all this craziness went on. Um, so it's kind of odd uh, thinking about it now because it, it was a kind of uh, obsession for a while, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and in terms of the religious stuff, one thing that's really interesting about those two books is so much of what is in White Teeth is about really fundamentalist kind of approaches to religion. Right. Um, and so much of what is in The Autograph Man is much more sort of willing to compromise and yeah. gentle and ecumenical. So do you think partly you had done with thinking about the zealots and decided to investigate something a little more gentle? It, it was more just my interest in, in Judaism, its worldly aspect. That's what really interested me. Like I come from witnesses, obviously, um, that are mentioned in White Teeth, whose emphasis is entirely on, on the next world. Mm-hmm. This world, they almost move through as if it doesn't exist. Um, and I was uh, wary of that just because I, if you move through the world as if this world doesn't exist, there aren't many limits on how you'll behave within it. You know, It's quite a frightening concept. Um, so I, I guess Judaism interested me because of its emphasis on, on the worldly, because when I thought of my Jewish friends, if I tried to get into a conversation about the afterlife with them, it didn't hold any interest. And I'd never come across a religion like that. It was not, it was not the focus. The focus was this practice, ritual particularly, ritual in daily life, ritual in family life. Um, and that really interested me. Mm-hmm. Um, so it started there, yeah. The idea of, of a people who are obsessively adding meaning to their daily lives in this kind of ritualistic way. Um, so a question about white teeth as well, and if you're willing, I'm going to ask you to read a little bit again. Um, this from the very end of the novel, and there are places where you've said, so starting with the green brackety yeah. thing, there are places where you've said that in the end you just kind of threw up your hands and so do all the characters. Um, but I love the end of this book. It, strikes me as sort of an opposite to the neat Victorian novel where, you know, everything gets wrapped up in the epilogue. 
I, honest, I have not read this since I wrote it. So I know. I know you don't like to, too. So I'm sorry like for asking you. Something like 17 years ago. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> but but first, the end games, because it seems no matter what you think of them, they must be played, even if, like the independence of India or Jamaica, like the signing of peace treaties or the docking of passenger boats, the end is simply the beginning of an even longer story. The same focus group who picked out the color of this room, the carpet the font for the posters, the height of the table, would no doubt check the box that asked to see all these things played to their finish. And there is surely a demographic pattern to all those who wish to see the eyewitness statements that identified Majid as many times as Milat, the confusing transcripts, the videotape of uncooperating victim and families, a court case so impossible the judge gave in and issued 400 hours community service to both twins, which they served naturally as gardeners in Joyce's new project a huge millennial park by the banks of the Thames. And is it young professional women aged 18 to 32 who would like a snapshot seven years hence of Irie, Joshua and Hortense sitting by a Caribbean sea? For Irie and Joshua became lovers in the end, you can only avoid your fate for so long. And while Irie's father's little girl writes affectionate postcards to bad uncle Milat and good uncle Majid and feels free as Pinocchio, a puppet clipped of paternal strings, and could it be that it is largely the criminal class and the elderly who find themselves wanting to make bets on the winner of a blackjack game, the one played by Alsana and Samad, Archie and Clara in O'Connell's December 31st, 1999, that historic night when Abdul Mickey finally opened his doors to women? But surely to tell these tall tales and others like them would be to speed the myth, the wicked lie that the past is always tense and the future perfect. And as Archie knows, it's not like that. It's never been like that. No idea what any of that refers to. That's so funny. Plot <laughs> points. So, yeah. Yeah. Well. So. Yes. Glad to have given you that experience. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, do you feel like there's anything in there of sort of the anti-Victorian novel or the anti-ending? I, I'm, actually, I'm actually quite amazed. I, I don't. I don't remember writing that. I. I can't. I. I remember. I wanted to finish. I definitely wanted to finish. But it also interests me the thing of. Um, of. Um, talking about it in terms of audience. That yeah. that is recognisable and strange idea. Yeah. As if you're trying to please everybody. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's odd. I don't know what to say about it. We'll throw up our hands <laughs> yeah. and move on to the next thing. <laughs> um, so you also have uh, written these interesting essays that kind of compare two things, and one of them is about Bart and Nabokov. Mm. Um, and in that essay you say, the house rules of a novel, the laying down of the author's peculiar terms, all of this is what interests me. So how have your house rules changed from white teeth, apparently there were none, uh, to yeah. NW or even swing time. I, I don't think you'd know that white teeth and swing time were written by the same person, I don't think. Though, though you know, the neighborhood is similar, there's Wilsdon in it, and so you'd know it from the, I guess, mm -hmm. the content, but not from the tone. Um, I, I guess that, that, that attempt to please everybody does not... Um, I, I'm not so interested in it anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And I was very moved recently hearing Toni Morrison say, she's being interviewed in England, I think this is why it came up in the interview. The interviewer was troubling over her status as a black writer, and she said, I write for black people. I mean, I'm glad when everybody else reads it, but I write for them. And the English interviewer was so shocked, as English interviewers tend to be when these <laughs> things are mentioned. And I, I found it really beautiful, a woman who's aged 83 or whatever Tony is now, just to explicitly describe her project. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that novels always um, create a community around them, have a community in mind. Um, and I've always loved that my readership is very mixed in all kinds of ways. But, but there are also things that are, I suppose, intimate to my experience and my community that I find I do want to express uh, more subjectively, you know, mm -hmm. and more directly. Um, and I, I, I think the main thing that's changed for me is I, I still like to write comically in a comic mode, but but I, I don't I don't want to make jokes at the expense of characters anymore, you know, or or create characters that are basically just jokes or, or punchlines of one kind or another. Mm -hmm. um, my my real life brother is a stand up and a very good one, and I I feel like he's covered that part of the family <laughs> business now, and I can I can be less funny, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that you're talking about sort of audience and who you're writing for. Um, partly because when you were writing those reviews for Harper's, you did this interview with your editor ahead yeah, of Jenny, time. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you said that one of the things that was really important to you was that there was a chance that the people you came from would read your books or yeah. could read your books. Um, and I was thinking about that, and you said it was kind of um, a weird class-based Olipo constraint um, in the way that you write. And then I picked up this tiny little book, uh, The Embassy of Cambodia. And there's a really interesting and strange section in here where there's this narrative voice that has um, a certain kind of questioning about why it gets to be the narrative voice. Right. So it's the last time I'll ask you to read, but no, will I, you read this I, section? I like this and... one. I'm very happy to read it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so just um, that section, 13. Uh, to keep you is no benefit, to destroy you is no loss, was one of the mottos of the Khmer Rouge. It referred to the new people, those city dwellers who could not be made to give up city life and work on a farm. By returning everybody back to the land, the regime hoped to create a society of old people, that is to say, of agrarian peasants. When a new person was relocated from the city to the country, it was vital not to show weakness in the fields. Vulnerability was punishable by death. In Wilsdon, we are almost all new people, though some of us, like Fatou, were, until quite recently, old people, working the land in our various countries of origin. Of the old and new people of Wilsdon, I speak. I have been chosen to speak for them, though they did not choose me, and must wonder what gives me the right. I could say, because I was born at the crossroads of Wilsdon, Kilburn, and Queen's Park, but the reply would be swift and damning. Oh, don't be foolish. Many people were born right there. It doesn't mean anything at all. We are not one people and no one can speak for us. It's all a lot of nonsense. We see you standing on the balcony, overlooking the embassy of Cambodia, in your dressing gown, staring into the chestnut trees, looking gormless. The real reason you speak in this way is because you can't think of anything better to do. 
So, yeah. <laughs> that sets up a kind of interesting relationship with writing for the people you came from, right? Because on the one hand, you have talked about wanting to be able to write things that they could enter into. And on the other hand, and I admit, I'm sort of conflating you with a narrator here, but on the other hand, this section of this book, it makes it seem like that relationship is more complicated. Like there's some kind of uncertainty about how to approach writing for the people you came from. I think it's, it's a double bind of working class literature, which is almost uh, a tautology, almost. It's different, like my brothers were rappers and all musicians who are almost always from working class backgrounds don't have this tension because of the openness of music. You don't need a special education to listen to a song. Um, it's something people become highly educated in music in the comfort of their own living rooms, uh, largely for free. Um, and so when I think about working class art, I think about music because that's our greatest monument and pride. So writing is, is just difficult. It's, it's difficult because to write, you do need to be educated. You need this process. You need to learn how to read. Um, and the great working class artists, there's people like Joyce, who creates a monument that, in fact, his people can't enter, can't even understand. His own wife couldn't understand it, <laughs> wouldn't read it. So that's the thing. You, you, you create something that a narrow path in, in which people can't follow. Um, and then some of the great artists we think of as working class writers like Orwell, I'm going to talk about this evening, was of course upper middle class boy from a fancy school who um, impoverished himself deliberately in order to write about these people. Um, so I, I am aware of it. Uh, with the Embassy of Cambodia, I, I was really hopeful. I knew they were going to sell it um, you know, on the, f on the front of bookstores in, in that little bit by the counter. Um, and that's re I really wanted it to be published, even though it seems so absurd to put a hardback I know on a story, but I, I had the idea that maybe someone like Fatou would walk in and buy it. Um, it's small and simple um, and open in the way it was written. Um, so, yeah, it's on my mind. And I, I used to think of it as a kind of weird burden or something. Uh, but now I think, like when I read like hipster avant-garde writers or whatever, and their audience is so extraordinarily narrow, and they have no anxiety or shame about it, but they want they want it that way. Mm -hmm. They came out of that system, and they want to create that system behind them. Um, and I I feel like my work is getting more open, or I'm trying anyway. And the challenge is to to think: Can I say whatever I want to say? in simple language. It, it, it is an intellectual challenge, you know? Does it have to be falsely complicated on the surface because it's a complicated idea? I don't think it does. Um, so it's finding that balance. But, but also, I know very clearly, like, if I am in Wilsdon, I'm not, I'm not one of... The, I'm not in that community anymore the way my brother is. You now, my brother's on TV every night, but he's still there. Mm -hmm. He still is relatable in some way. Whereas I... I have moved into a different class as far as they're all concerned, which is correct. It's true. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about the definitions that come out of place yeah. um, and have to do with place. And I'd like to turn a little bit, and we've touched on this, but to the definitions that are born out of belief or out of religious affiliation. Um, 
And one of the things that is curious to me is from this interview where you interviewed Ian McEwen. Yeah. Um, and you asked him if he had any patience at all for religion. And his not. answer was unequivocally, very unequivocally, yeah. no. Yeah. And you said, I suppose I feel the same, but I feel strange about feeling it. Um, and then in an interview seven years later, you said that um, your husband says you have to do everything you can not to be a Christian, that you have <laughs> to put all your energy into not being religious, that it's a daily effort. Um, yeah, no, Ian and I don't agree at, agree at all. I mean, when I was doing that interview, I was very young and very, um, you know, starstruck and um, I, pleased to be, I mean, he was a big influence on me when I was a kid, but we, do, we don't agree at all and um, have actually had several, <laughs> several arguments on the topic, so we don't really discuss that kind of thing anymore. Um, but... Uh, I I I, I, be, I guess I believe in the, in that um, like the varieties of religious experience idea, and that a, a lot of people have religious experience who might not even think of or refer to themselves as religious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ian would call those experiences aesthetic, and he would he would um, he's a great lover of nature, and he. Um, he uses poetry, I think, as a, as a place where those feelings reside. Mm-hmm. Um, but the extreme end of um, of Ian's crowd, Hitchens, all the rest of it, the, the, the idea uh, that I have heard expressed sometimes, some of them, for instance, that no book written by a person of faith could be could be taken seriously as a work of art. I mean, it's, it's just so so extraordinary. Never mind, like Thomas Aquinas, but but um, <laughs> you know, Muriel Spark, Spark, Graham Greene, Eliot. I mean, such a long list. Uh, so it, it's it's interesting to me that I, one of the things I felt in, when I was writing White Teeth was that the religious impulse is also very strong in atheists. It's it's possible to be religious about atheism mm-hmm. um, from the, from the kind of if Ian's talking about that kind of dogmatism. Mm-hmm. Um, that's equally available to people on both sides. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm very interested in ecstatic religious experience. I had a very good friend in college called Jess Frazier, who is a philosopher and uh, academic, whose, whose task it's been for a decade now to go around the world asking people what their idea of God is, and she just goes everywhere and does this, um, all over the place, all over India, um, I always thought, what a fantastic job that must be. I'm always very jealous of her. She's <laughs> going to publish her findings at some point, but I'd be very curious to read them. Yeah. So that explains what you owe sort of your patience or even interest in faith to. So what do you owe the resistance to? Um, uh, well, it's all the usual uh, complaints. <laughs> about organized faith and dogmatism and um, Mm -hmm. uh, complex metaphysics that I can't get behind, Mm -hmm. all all that kind of thing. Um, But uh, in a a very childlike way, my instinct as a a kid and it remains is that, that these various texts are interpretive works of philosophy. They they have something to say about what it is to be in the world. To me, um, 
the texts of Islam are about submission in a really interesting way. Submission is one part of human life, should be. Um, the New Testament, with its insistence on um, uh, the sin that happens inside, mm -hmm. even before it's acted upon, is another aspect of life I find very interesting. The Older Testament, with its um, emphasis on the law, these all seem to me aspects of human experience. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, I take them as seriously as when I'm reading Kierkegaard or if I read Plato. I, to me, these are writings, writings on the nature of what it is to be in the world. Um, but that, that is probably not enough for most seriously religious people, but that's my experience of them. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so I also have to ask you a question about your reading C.S. Lewis. And you should yeah. know, C.S. Lewis to people around here is what the Pope is to Catholics. No, I, I, love, I love Lewis so much. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. So you talk about reading um, Surprised by Joy. And one of the things that I was thinking about when um, I read that was your own essay of definition um, about joy and how it's very different from pleasure. Um, and in talking about uh, your child, you say... She's sometimes a pleasure, but mostly a joy. Mm -hmm. And that joy is this strange admixture of terror and pain and delight. And you say, if you asked me if I wanted more joyful experiences in my life, I wouldn't be sure at all I did. It's not at all obvious to me how we should make an accommodation between joy and the rest of our everyday lives. So I wonder if you see someone like Lewis using Christianity as a way to make an accommodation between joy and the rest of his everyday life? Um, Lewis, for me, he's my earliest influence because I love Narnia so much and was so, so obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, I, the closest I ever became to being a formal Christian was the Screwtape Letters, which actually David Foster Wallace recommended to me. And I found it um, just incredibly uh, convincing, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as I think he found them convincing too. Um, I, I think for me, with Lewis, from what I said before, I don't know how clear it was, but the idea that all these um, texts perhaps refer to an ultimate reality or gesture towards it. But the question of submitting to one cultural response to that Mm -hmm. See, I, I never understood as a teenager how I was to make that choice. With what Lewis, how Lewis interests me is that the commitment itself is what's important. Mm -hmm. It's that he, he has made this choice. Um, I think I could make it in many places, but um, but I, yeah, I, I was always impressed by his his choice to make this commitment. Um, he's also the most beautiful writer. He's just a stunning, stunning writer. The clarity is so good. And the intimacy. If you're suffering from grief, to read his book on grief is so, it's so direct and so uh, lacking in cant and hypocrisy and bluster. You know, he's very clear and he's also got that kind of rightly instinct for knowing your, your doubts and suspicions. He already has them covered. That's what screw tape is, basically. It's just a series of guessing your complaints, <laughs> getting there before you, um, and articulating them so well. Um, but I, I, I guess 
even from the Narnia books, I always thought that to it sounds ridiculous. To make the commitment would be to almost to be lost to joy, like you wouldn't be able to um, go about your daily life. I think that maybe that's one of the frightening things about faith for me, that it would be an obstruction of my daily life. And I like my everyday sinful life. That's the problem. <laughs> um, good. So one more um, question just about the religious sort of realm, and you know, you have a number of characters that use the phrase God-bothering, um, and I'm not trying to God-bother you, um, but I think uh, it's interesting how consistently characters in your books have some kind of religious identity or affinity or what have you, um, and I wonder um, if part of the problem with faith as you see it sometimes enacted or played out has to do less with the belief and more with the kind of unilateral, I have the only answer yes. sort of zealotry. Yes, it's, it's, the, um, it's the certainty. I like that picture that Graham Greene gives of a kind of extreme Catholicism where even when people think, he says, even when my characters think they're sinning against God, they're mistaken, they try, but they can't even get there. And that to me is a more interesting, his Catholicism is really interesting to me because it lives in uncertainty. You cannot know God, you cannot know even when you're truly disapproving him. You're, sorry, he is disapproving of you. Your knowledge of him is so minute, really, mm -hmm. and so partial. Um, so that re religious people in green come off quite badly, formally religious, in the sense of people who think they know the rules of the game, their relation to God, who's being punished, who's not being punished. He, he is, he's wary of those people, mm -hmm. but it's out of respect for a God who is larger than, than their arguments. Um, that, that vision attracts me. But yes, any, anything which condemns you know, throws the stone at the, at the house next door is, is my issue. Mm -hmm. my, my main and closest religious feeling is one expressed by Iris Murdoch about the good, that the good is God and that the, the knowledge of it, the fact that we can even speak of it as a concept is the evidence of God. Mm -hmm. That's as close as I've ever come. And I, I don't find that to be even a kind of a statement of belief. It seems to me evidently true that the good is God in the, in the world, and anywhere it's practiced, acted upon, remembered in moments of um, you know, danger or horror. I, I don't see what else God could be but that. And that, that existence of goodness in people as an idea, as a kind of almost force in the world, that, that's the thing that I believe, quote unquote believe in. Mm -hmm. I don't think, for instance, like the behavioral Psychologists, that good is just a way of, um, it's a kind of a way of protecting yourself so that we don't stampede in the crowd because we know if that person stampedes, I also get killed. It's like a kind of defensive mode. Mm -hmm. I don't think that covers half of the um, evidence you see of good in the world. Hmm. Thank you. Um, so we've talked a lot about the what of the books and the why of the books and the where of the books. Um, but I wondered if we could end by talking a little bit about the how of the books um, and a little bit about craft. 
Uh, and one of the things that you've talked about, and especially, I think, in conversations with other writers, is this sort of problem of what or how much or how to borrow from your own life um, and how to sort of balance on the one hand wanting to leave certain experiences to just be themselves and being willing to pull other people or experiences in and using them as fodder for fiction in some way. So can you talk a little bit about how you negotiate that? I I think when I was young, I thought I was going to be a very moral novelist, not like Roth and all these guys I was coming out from underneath. Um, And... uh, but it's not, it's not true. I, I, use, I use everything in the end. Yeah, unfortunately, that's what writers do. And all the, all the things I used to so disapprove of when I was young, exactly that idea that, that they will use everything as copy, as Nora Ephron said, and they will do anything, really, for uh, something on the page, has also proven to be true of me. I don't, I don't mean to do it, and I'm not, when I'm writing it, I'm not thinking... You fool yourself. You say, so-and-so won't be hurt and this won't matter because you can't really bear to take it out. Um, And a lot of it is done subconsciously. uh, And I think it does does hurt people. But um, I I, I suppose I thought I wasn't uh, wasn't kind of psychologically a writer like the rest of them. I was much more uh, distant from the process. But as I've got older... um, I realise that we're, we're all quite similar in temperament and it's quite hard to get, to get out of it. And, you know, those books, I think of those Philip Roth books that caused so much pain and Bellows books, particularly to real individuals who were in them. Or, and I, 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 don't know what, I don't know what to do about that. The books remain and they're still wonderful and they have a separate kind of good effect on other individuals and will continue to do that but I don't think you can deny the harm they do in the moment, they do a lot of harm so in terms of that raw material, you write somewhere about how your husband who is also a writer and you, um, and maybe you still do this worked on different floors of the library Mm -hmm. Um, but as you did so how you sort of collected interesting looking people and their quirks and their faces Um, and then at the end of the day you would sit down and sort of swap (laughs) the material you'd gathered so my question is just how did you decide who ended up with who? But we don't we don't think of it in that essay and make it sound, seem like a technical procedure. <laughs> it's just the way we talk to each other. It's certainly the case with these books we're writing now, both his poems and he's finishing a novel and the novel I'm finishing. That, that I, we both we we're talking about it a few nights ago and realizing he was telling me the plot and I was thinking, see, there will be things that are similar. I think because we haven't mm-hmm. been, spent much time um, talking about the books this time when we were writing them. Um, but because we spend so much time together, I think some of the deep patterns are the same. Um, uh, but I, I never, I don't know, I don't worry about even uh, overlapping material. Or I never think of material in that way. Like it, if me and another journalist are at the same event writing about the same thing, it, it doesn't bother me. I always assume whatever, whenever the situation passes through you, it has its individual color mm-hmm. and can't really be replicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
one last question. Uh, you say in yet another essay that Joyce's ideal reader was himself, and that was his purity. Forrester's ideal reader was a kind of projection and not one entirely sympathetic to him. Who's your ideal reader? I guess mine's quite like Forster's. Uh, I, I admire Joyce, but I don't, I suppose I don't love him really. Um, I love the Dubliners very much. Um, but when he enters that mode of, it's kind of like a self-pleasure. It is that, Ulysses. It's, he used to delight every day at the end of a day's work. He was so happy creating this kind of monument to himself and his memory and experience. And uh, I don't know, I do like fiction more outward-facing. Um, and I have come to, particularly in swing time, where I'm thinking so particularly of, of certain kinds of readers and wanting to speak to them, um, th th I think that's just my mode. I, I don't think I have a big, elaborate, internal world to, uh, to offer the world. I'm more... I, I'm always trying to ask people, did, did you feel this? Do you feel this? Is, has this occurred to you? Mm -hmm. I'm always trying to make that kind of connection with other people. Mm -hmm. Well, from looking around, I think it's happened. <laughs> Good. And on behalf of all your readers here, I would like to thank you so much thank for talking you. with me today. Thank you very much. Many thanks to Becca Walkus. We're excited to see what cool things are in store for her in the coming years. Thanks also to Zadie Smith and to John Wilson, who published an edited version of this interview by James Wart in the September-October 2016 issue of Books and Culture, available online. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes John Brown, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Lou Klatt, Deb Reenstra, Amanda Smart, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and James Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you are especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing.